0: For the rest of you, we're going to be in Luke chapter 21, and this week is going to begin um, three weeks, so this is the first of three, uh, called the end question mark, and we'll be in Luke chapter 21 as we look at what's called the Olivet Discourse, Jesus teaching his disciples On the Mount of Olives, or the Olivet Olivet Discourse is why it's called that. Um, And it's going to be talking about how we, uh, well, you'll see what it's talking about. Talking about the end, some of it. Uh, Some of it is uh, sometimes applied to how we understand the end of time and the second coming of Jesus. And it ought not to be applied there, as we'll see in just a second. Um, But I'm going to tackle, by God's grace, uh, verses 5 through 19. I'm going to read that this morning. So would you stand? As I read Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 19, and hear the word of the Lord. As uh, So we're talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. He said, these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Teacher, they asked him, so when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Then he said, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, it is necessary that these things take place first. But the end won't come right away. Then he told them, nation will be raised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will, be given, this will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But not a hair of your head will be lost. By your endurance, gain your lives. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you again for this moment, for this day. Set aside that we might worship together. And now this moment of our time together where we have designated it to hear from you. So God, would you open your word to us? Would you make it clear? Would you make it applicable? Would you help us to hear and in faith and obey in faith? Help us to see, help us to hear, soften our hearts. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away but your word will never pass away. So Lord, would you speak to us today? Speak, O Lord. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So, I wasn't around, I didn't really wasn't paying attention uh, in the late 80s. Uh, I, was, I was born in 1982. Some of you that's young some of you, that's old. And it's just my status in life now, I suppose, to be middle-aged. And uh, sorry if that offends you. Um, but in 1988, there was a, a book came out that's, that was 88 Reasons Why Jesus Was Going to Return in 1988. And obviously, that didn't happen. And so there was one in 1989. There was 89 Reasons Why Jesus Was Going to Come Back in 1989. And finally, whoever that guy was gave up. Uh, but that that kind of theme has continued where... People have thought, based upon the circumstances of the world, usually geopolitical circumstances, that therefore now is when Jesus is going to return. This guy had 88 reasons that Jesus was going to come back then. I don't know if you remember, there was a, I think his name was Harold Camping. And there was a whole movement, I think it was Florida, that that, that Jesus was going to come back in I think 2012 maybe. And he had billboards, people sold their, and gave away their inheritance to buy all of this material to tell people to get ready that Jesus was going to come back in 2012. I don't know about y'all, but I don't think we missed it. One of the major players back in not just the 80s, 70s, 80s, the Cold War times, uh, one of the major players was Russia. Maybe you've heard Gog and Magog and those sort of that's prophecy and Ezekiel apply to Russia. And then uh, another great sort of uh, writer and along these lines was a guy named uh, Hal Lindsey in the late great planet Earth. Um, and so if you're looking for that kind of sermon, this is not that kind of sermon. This is not that kind of series. Um, because half of the chapter that we are about to engage in, half of the chapters already happened. I say that with full confidence. The passage that I just read has already happened. This is not a future-looking passage. This was something that was particular to the apostles. Oh, there's this stunned silence. I've done my job) <laughs> Um, And and so I'm not here to parse out theories of the end times, different views of the millennium. That's not what I'm doing today. okay? Um, but I want to say to you that this is not that. that Jesus will return as a thief in the night. We no one knows the time or the hour. We may believe that we can look at certain things around us and say, Jesus is coming is nigh. It's near. But dear ones, Christians have been saying that since Jesus ascended. It is the right and proper posture for Jesus' people in this world and this age to be anticipating His imminent return. It is not for you to know when, it's for you to be ready. In fact, there are passages, Second Thessalonians, where Paul is re-engaging with the church at Thessalonica. And they were so caught up that Jesus was going to return at any moment. They were just like the the, the apostles and the disciples in Acts chapter 1. After Jesus went up and they're sitting there staring in the heavens. And finally an angel comes down and says, why are you staring up there? He's going to come back the same way that he went. Now basically get to work. The Thessalonians have become so caught up in Jesus's imminent return that all of the things around them had caused them rather to be to be about Jesus's kingdom work they were about waiting they'd given up their jobs they'd quit working they'd quit caring and they were just saying Jesus is going to come and part of readiness part of readiness means that we must be about our father's business when the sun is up and when the sun is down. We must be about our father's business when the bullets are flying and when there's peace. We must be about our father's business, the kingdom business, no matter the circumstances in which we find ourselves. That is how you are ready. You are not ready by parsing out news headlines saying, therefore, Jesus is going to come. The whatever the... Goat from the north has finally descended to the south and now Jesus is going to come. That's not your job. Your job is to seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added to you. So now that I've punched you in the mouth a little bit, not really, hopefully not too much. What is happening here? Jesus is now entered into Jerusalem. He has had the triumphal entry. He's talked about authority. Last week, we talked about the king's authority in chapter 20. And now he begins the beginning of the chapter, which I didn't read, is the story, the very short, short story of the widow who gives two copper coins into the temple treasury. And Jesus says that she gave everything. She gave more than everybody else because she gave to the point of sacrifice, basically, and they give in surplus. And this brings into a conversation, brings a conversation about the temple. They're in the temple. They see her giving in the temple. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 5 is that as some were talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones. Consider his disciples. These were not men of rank, right? These are mainly, a lot of them are fishermen. There's a tax collector. There's a zealot. There are people who would be enamored with big and beautiful things. And they come into the temple there in Jerusalem, which, by the way, this is not Solomon's temple. This is Solomon's temple was torn down by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. This is the second temple, which is still beautiful, but it was nothing compared to Solomon's temple. And so Jesus kind of interrupts their gawking to say, these things that you see will one day be torn down. These things that you see will one day be torn down. He is talking to this generation He's talking to his apostles. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to the people that are in front of them. You will see these things torn down. They will be torn down. The reference here in Luke chapter 21, just as it was earlier in chapter 19, where Jesus comes and he weeps over Jerusalem. You remember that part in 41 through 44 of chapter 19, uh, that he saw the city and he wept for it because they didn't know the things that would bring their peace. And that one day enemies would build a barricade around them. And he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem happens at the end of the Jewish wars with the Roman Empire in 70 AD. The God's judgment falls upon an apostate people. His apostate covenant people who had broken covenant. They had rejected his messengers. Remember the... The, the parable from last week where the where the owner of the vineyard sends messengers, sends servants to, the, to claim what is rightfully his. And finally, he sends his son. And when they reject his son, who's coming next? The owner of the vineyard to mete out judgment upon those who have killed his son. They reject the Messiah. They reject the one that the Lord has ador- ordained for them. They kill Christ believing that somehow by killing him they would be able to keep or to claim that which they thought was theirs but actually belonged to God. And 70 AD is the culmination of God's judgment upon the Jewish people. Now I'm not saying this is not an end times like God is altogether done with ethnic Israel. That's another conversation that Romans 11 would have much to tell us about. But at this point, the crushing of Jerusalem opens the door for the ministry to the Gentiles. And in fact, the hardness of the Jewish people we see throughout the book of Acts. Now, some Jews believe, many believe at the early outset, but there's also this calcified, hardened rejection of Jesus. And it it pushes not just in Jerusalem, but it follows Paul around Asia Minor where he is stoned by not pagans not heathens but apostate Jews. And so the judgment of God is a hardening judgment it is a it destroys Jerusalem and Jesus is saying not one stone will be left upon another. And so as we see what's happening here there're two things two sides of the same coin that I want you to see. One The things that Jesus warns them about are are things that are particular to that generation. Secondly, the things that Jesus warns them about are things that we must pay attention to in principle in this age. When you think about ages, it's important for you to know that there are only two. There is this evil present age and there is the age to come. We saw that last week when Jesus was interacting with the Sadducees. Remember when they were quizzing him about marriage and they're quizzing him about marriage. And it says, um, you know, a guy has a wife and then um, he dies and he like seven of them die. Seven brothers die. There's no children. Whose wife will she be? And Jesus says in this age, but in the age to come, those who are worthy of the age to come. Jesus paints there subtly. Subtly, but he paints a picture of this age and the age to come. So ever since Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father, this has been both the church age and the last days. Now, what I'm telling you, I know, is divergent from many things that you've heard. This is not a uh, a blood moons sermon, right? I, I am painting for you a different understanding, a different doctrinal theological painting of the end times. And one day, when I get up the nerve, we're going to go through Revelation. Yeah. Or when y'all get up the nerve. Yeah. When I, when we all together, how about that? We all gather together. There's no, uh, there's no arrogance there, I promise you. It is an intimidating book. But no, I'm painting you a different picture. But there's this age, and then when Jesus comes that wraps up the show y'all that's the end of the age and the age to come it's the birth of the new age it's the it's not the birth it's the it's the consummation of the kingdom remember what jesus is doing in jerusalem and really all of his earthly ministry and life but coming up to jerusalem what he does in his cross work in the empty tomb in his ascension is the inauguration of the kingdom of god it's the bringing to bear the kingdom of God but it is not the full blossoming. It's not the full picture. It's not the full consummation. It's not the it's not the the full yetness. It, there's an alreadyness, right? It's already here. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's among us. God is it. the kingdom of God is present here and now but it's not as it ought to be yet, right? We're still praying the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because we can look around and see that the kingdom is not yet here fully. But yet we can still see as Christians with new eyes that the kingdom is here. Simultaneously, the kingdom is here and the kingdom is not yet here. The kingdom is here in part, but is not here in full. And when we think about the kingdom of God, we're talking about new creation. We're talking about the doing away of the effects of the fall and of sin and of Satan. We're talking about the, the binding of Satan as in his deceptive works, so that people can come to faith in Jesus. We're talking about whoever is in Christ is a new creation. There, you are a first fruit of the kingdom. You're the, you're the first. You're the you're the jalapeno. This is how you ought to operate in this world. The preacher tells you today that you are a jalapeno popper. For the kingdom. You're a tater skin. Mozzarella stick. Right? That, that as you go around, you're living your life. Not just in here. But as you're living your life out there. That you should be an appetizer of what's going to come. We're going to make t-shirts. At Blaney Baptist Church, we are jalapeno poppers. Or whatever you're... Just a little spicy, you know? I feel like it fits us some of us some of us are saltier than others <laughs> so there's this age and there's the age to come where have we gone okay uh, so then what should we expect well we should expect not the exact same things as the as the disciples because those events have already happened but the same things are going to be the rhythm of jesus's church in this age until jesus returns you understand what i'm saying we're not, we, don't expect a, we, don't ex, we don't anticipate a building of the kingdom and a tearing down of the kingdom again. We don't expect a war with the Romans, right? Those things have happened. But we do expect the same types of things to continue to happen. So what ought we to expect? Well, firstly, in verse 8, watch out that you are not deceived. What would they be deceived by? False Christs and false gospels. People who are coming into Jerusalem and coming into Israel saying, I'm he. I'm the second return of Jesus. If you follow any sort of cultic activity in the world today, you know that there has have been and there are and there will be those who claim to be the second coming of Jesus. Most famously, you might remember David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, which who, by the way, they still exist just differently now. Or like not too long ago, and it was was it last week, two weeks ago when we had the VBS meeting and I I had to leave and Sarah Beth had to come. Uh, and during the VBS meeting, we had a, 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 a cult lady come into our VBS meeting saying that she was one of the trumpets. She was one of the seven trumpets of the book of revelation. So apparently I, I need to preach the book of revelation soon because she had a very that self-aggrandized view that she would be the trumpet. And I'm sure that somewhere there is a Christ figure behind all of that movement. So there're false Christs that are very blatant about it, but there're also false Christs who would claim a certain status, a certain influence, a certain impact, a way of of, of gurus and cultural guides who might not use the language of being a Christ or be claiming to be Jesus, but that they would seek to lead people in a certain way of living that is antithetical to the gospel. And along with those who would be false Christs, they carry a false gospel. A false gospel is, this is how you, we all recognize that there's brokenness in this world, and this is how you fix it. So the false gospel of self-help, the false gospel of prosperity, the false gospel of, um, of certain, certain forms of postmodernism, the false gospel of certain forms of modernism, the false gospel of philosophy, the false gospel of materialism, the false gospel of scientism, the false gospel of familyism, the false gospel of vocationism. There are all sorts of things that people look to be delivered by. We look for our status and our purpose and our freedom in these things. False gospel of nationalism or globalism or populism, socialism, capitalism. How many isms can I rattle off before I lose my track of thought? So we can expect false Christs with false gospels. And I've just rattled off a few of them. But these are things that we need to be watching out for. Because it's by means of false Christ's, by means of captivating personalities, people who have who have charisma. You talk about a word that we have bastardized, charisma. You know where that comes from? Grace gift, a gift of the Spirit. Charis is the Greek word for grace of something that God would do in our midst. And rather we look at a person who's really, really fun and really easy to listen to. And we say that person must have it right. Are they filling up church buildings? Are they filling up church buildings in Charlotte or in Houston? In California, Lord knows what they're doing in California. Gas is like $18 a gallon. It's really like $6. I was exaggerating. but It's like $6 a gallon right now. Um, But are they filling up these buildings? Surely they must be doing something right. Look at their books. They're number one sellers on these lists, on these newspapers. Surely they're doing something right. Christians, we fall so easily for the popular, for the magnetic personality, rather than saying, are they telling me the truth? This book is certainly very entertaining, but is it telling me the truth? Watch out, Jesus says to His disciples, but Jesus says it to us. Do not be deceived. There is one Jesus, there is one Gospel, and He has made Himself known in Scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit until Jesus comes. There are no more books of the Bible being written. There's no other Christ coming except for the one Christ. There's no other Gospel And we must be like what Paul tells the church at Galatia. If anyone comes with a different gospel, right? Chapter 1 of Galatians, chapter 1, 6 through 9, something about that, something around there. If anyone comes with a different gospel, let them be accursed. And then he even says, even if we come, even if the teachers and the preachers that we love who led us to the truth, if they depart from the truth, let them be accursed. Don't follow charisma, follow the Spirit of God and His Word. Okay. Second thing that we can expect false Christ, false gospel is the first thing. Second thing that we can expect are wars and conflict. Verse 9: When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed, it's so easy. It's easier for me now with three children and one on the way. When you see what's happening on the political, geopolitical, military, whatever. You see what's happening with Russia and Ukraine to say, we're on the, we're on the, 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 the front edge, right? We're on the stoop of World War III. And it's very, very easy for, for me at night. Like last night, I had a million things that I was thinking about. This was not all of them, but this was one of them. What kind of world am I leading my children into? What will it look like in five years? Will it look like in ten years when my daughter begins to drive? Will we have finally reached the level of the Jetsons where she can fly around in a flying car? That's another, a whole other thing for a dad to wig out about. Not only do you have to worry about you're going to hit deer, but you're going to hit turkey vultures and whatever else. He's Welcome to late night Jacob Brain. You have no idea. No idea what's happening in there. Um, but don't be alarmed that when you look at the course of history, you can see the undulations. There is a topography to a history book. There are times of peace and there are times of strife. There are strife that engulfs the globe and there's strife that is localized. There are wars and conflict that has been and will be brewing until Jesus returns. Make, you know, you just think about what my, my, my grandparents on my dad's side, I don't know if I, you guys know this, I don't have a lot of time to tell you this story. But, um, grandparents on my dad's side were born in 1900. My dad's parents were born in 1900. Helsley generations on my, as the, the, Helsley, on the, the men, is, they're long, they're big generations. So my grandparents were born in 1900. Needless to say, I never met them. But you consider what they lived through. Now, my dad's mom died in 1954 when my dad was 13. Um, But his dad lived through, you have World War I, what what the Europeans call the Great War, and World War II. And you consider in in the Great Depression and all the other stuff that was kicking through there. And some of you have, you know, maybe your parents or your grandparents, you're not far removed from that either. And yet these people... When I think about my grandparents, they kept the faith. My, my grandparents on my mom's side, they were married on D-Day. Not like on the anniversary of D-Day, but on 1944, they were married on D-Day. And then my grandfather, as a chaplain in the army, packed up and moved, went, went overseas. And he was on a hospital ship in the North Atlantic. It's a whole nother world. But they kept the faith. Do not be alarmed when the wars and the conflicts come. There is an undulation and topography of history that will continue. And whether whether war comes our way or not, Jesus will be and is king. But Jesus gives us this insight at the end of verse 9, but the end won't come right away. That the, the presence of false Christs and the presence of war and conflict are not indicative that Jesus is going to come back in 15 minutes. They are part and parcel of this age. They go along with this time. That while the kingdom of God is growing, and the kingdom of God is growing as Jesus brings more people into the kingdom. This is how we think about our salvation. right? Colossians 1.13 He has delivered us. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from the kingdom, the dominion of Satan, sin, and death. He delivers us and transfers us into what? The kingdom of His beloved Son. Brings us out of one kingdom, one rulership, one oppressive state, into a new kingdom of new freedom in Christ. (coughs) That's not indicative. So as the kingdom grows, um, as the kingdom grows, there will be creation groaning. There will be not only wars and conflict, but the third thing that we can expect are natural disasters, famine, plagues, pandemics, that these will be indicative of the age, not of Jesus's second coming. False Christs, wars, natural disasters, famines, plagues, etc., will mark this age until Jesus returns. And so, rather than when these things happen, rather than immediately looking up and, and pausing, so much of our doctrine of the end times that the American church has been embroiled in for the last 50, 75, 100 years especially Southern Baptist churches, not only Southern Baptist churches, but especially Southern Baptist churches, it paralyzes us for the future. It, it leaves us looking at the headlines, pausing and saying, all right, when the way, the avenue of readiness is not eyes on the newspaper, it's eyes on the king. And what must we do? What is the work that is given to us now in this age? What must we be about in this age? Well, we see a hint that Jesus gives us in the context of the fourth thing that we can expect in this age. So what can we expect in this age before the age to come? The age between Jesus' first and second coming, what ought we to expect? We should expect false Christs with false gospels that are deceptive. We should expect war, conflict, Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, rebellions in kingdoms, etc. We should expect natural disasters, famines, plagues, pandemics, viruses, bacteria, sickness. We expect all of these things. The fourth thing that he tells his people to be ready for is persecution. Now, some of these things are explicitly for the disciples, right? There will be violent earthquakes. So that's the the third thing, verse 11. Uh, Verse 12 is the fourth thing. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. Dear ones, you will be hated in this world because this world hates Jesus. And make sure that's why they hate you. Too many Christians do a really, they do a lot of work making sure the world hates them, but the world hates you because you're just a jerk. They don't hate you because of Jesus. There's something that is simultaneously to this world, simultaneously in Christ, there's something that is attractive and repellent. This is the status of fallen humanity. There's something attractive about Jesus and something repellent about Jesus. They love the Jesus who serves and who gives away cups of cold water, which you ought to do. But they hate the Jesus that says, I'm the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow. They love the Jesus that serves and even the Jesus that saves. But the Jesus that is too often hated is the king. And dear ones, you can't have Christ without being Christ being king. So in the context of persecution, now, right, these disciples, just consider the 12, only one of them reached old age, right? Just the apostle John. And that, was, that wasn't for lack of trying, right? Tradition says that he was like boiled alive, but he survived. And he was exiled and he lived to be an old man. That's when he received the revelation at the end of the book. Um, but you begin to read about what happens to Matthew and Mark and Luke Not not Mark, Matthew, and uh, James, and John, and Peter, Thomas—they all die because of the faith in Christ. Peter crucified upside down, James beheaded, Thomas dies in India, taking the gospel to the nations. On and on and on—the list goes. They're persecuted because of the name of Christ, and it wasn't just the apostles. It was the early church as well. We don't have time to delve into the stories of Perpetua and Felicitas. The stories of those who gave their lives to the animals in the Colosseum in Rome. The Christians who were lit on fire by Nero to give light to his dinner parties in Rome. We don't have time to tell those stories. But those are our brothers and sisters. Those are our ancestors in the faith. Persecution is not something that is just particular to that age, but it's particular to this age too. And the freedoms that Americans have American Christians have experienced for the last couple hundred years-ish are things that by and large in the grand sweep of human history are incredibly rare and unheard of almost. And that freedom, Christians, I'm not just talking to a nation, I'm talking about Christians in America, that freedom is a stewardship. What will we do with it? But there's something here that gives us a hint about how we ought to live in this age. What ought we to be about? It's not the only thing, but it's a big thing. After they've handed you over to kings and governors, this will give you an opportunity to bear witness. With the persecution comes opportunity. There's a story of Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and they were burned at the stake in uh, in Oxford, England. And Thomas Cranmer, who was sort of the, the archbishop, he was the... He wrote the, the, some of the first book of common prayer for the Anglican Church, the Church of England, before they largely lost their way. Not all of them. Um, but he was later burned at the stake at the same spot in, in Oxford. You can go to a street and there's a cobblestone cross in the middle of it. But there they were burned at the stake for, for things that would seem trivial to us. Views of the Lord's Supper. Who cares about that? Views of scripture. That was, that was sarcasm. But there, um, Latimer says to Ridley, one was old, one was young. Uh, and he says, take courage. Take courage as they're being, as the, the flames are being lit. Take courage. I don't know if you've ever watched the British Open when it's at St. Andrews. Um, but if you, when you come to the 18th green, sometimes you can catch a glimpse Uh, there is this obelisk, there's this stone pillar that's basically behind 18th Green, a little ways off, but you can see it. I don't know when it's coming to St. Andrews again, but it's probably going to be there someday. Uh, And that's the Martyrs Memorial. And on February 29th, so we're not going to see it this year, but February 29th, Patrick Hamilton, who was the first Scottish martyr, was burned at the stake. And it took like six hours because it was windy and cold and wet in Scotland. Polycarp, who was a disciple of Jesus, I mean, excuse me, a disciple of the Apostle John, who said when they lit the fire for him that as the, the smoke went up, it smelled like freshly baked bread. That's not the normal smell, by the way. But that there was a fragrant aroma and all of these things, and I've just given you stories of people. The final one that comes to mind, and I'll be quiet about this, because we know nothing of this type of persecution nor the type of faith that it builds. Thomas Cranmer. Later on, after Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer had been burned at the stake there in Oxford, he's brought to the same place and his story is complicated. He, he recants of a Protestant view and then he comes back to a Protestant view and, and, and as he's coming to the fire, as they lit the fire, he sticks his right hand into the flame first where he signed his recantation, where he signed that he had gone back to a Roman Catholic view of the mass and he had recanted of his recantation and he puts that... F- that hand first into the fire. Why am I telling you these things? Dear ones, this is our heritage. This is the heritage of Jesus' people in this age. And I have not scraped the surface of the story of those who have given their lives that we know about. Christians die almost weekly in Nigeria And yet they are worshiping this morning. There are Christians in the Ukraine. I read of pastors who said, I'm going to get up and make my way to the church building. And if it's still standing, we're going to have services. A different sort of faith is bred there, dear ones. And too often, our freedoms here have not made us diligent in the opportunity that Jesus has given us. To tell the world of Christ and to serve in his name. Persecution, difficulty. It drives you to prayer and it drives you to the word. It drives you to Christ in a way that few of us know. And what I fear is that it has made. And now this is, I'm not trying to be some like machismo guy, but it, but that kind of freedom can make you soft because you get too comfortable but we expect all of these things but in the context of a world in turmoil a world convulsing until Christ returns and he sets things right we are called with an opportunity to be agents of the kingdom Jesus gave the king the keys of the kingdom to the church you know what that means It means that we are like, we operate like, in a way, Peter calls us priests. We're ushering people as God gives us opportunity. As God has charged us with the gospel and the good news of Jesus. And to be his hands and his feet. That we are to be those who are helping usher people out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. But too often we miss our agenda. And we're about other business. And may what's happened this week on the other side of the world awaken us to the present evil age and the work that we must be doing. And if we are not doing it, if you are not doing it, by God's grace let us do it. As those who are living in the kingdom of light, only by His grace. Only by His grace. May we be people who take the opportunity to bear witness in word and deed. To be the appetizers of the kingdom. As you have been made new in Jesus, would you go and make places new? What would your home look like if you were living under the kingdom of Christ first and foremost? What should change in your marriage? What should change with your children? What should change with your grandchildren? How you're speaking to them and loving them and serving them and what are you doing with them? What would change in your workplaces as you begin to expect the upheaval of this world? And I know some of you are in incredibly difficult work circumstances. But what would change if you're saying, I'm new creation here. And God has gifted you with spiritual gifts for those places, not just for here. What would change with the opportunity that you have to bear witness in a world on fire and you come with good news? What would, you, what would change? Who would change? Beginning with me, who would be impacted? And may we labor and pray in that direction. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and we ask, O God, that you would bring more people into your kingdom, that you would deliver from darkness, bring into light even those who are hearing this today, who might be awakened to, in a fresh way, to the fragility of this life. Would they turn their eyes to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him despised the shame? He ran the race that was before him, race that led him to the cross, to death, but also to resurrection, and that whoever calls upon the name of Christ will be saved. Lord, would you make us diligent in this age to be about our Father's business, to proclaim far and wide, Jesus saves, Jesus is King to serve our neighbors and our families and our workplaces to look for those who have not yet known Jesus and say, how can I help them? How can I help them see Christ? How can I help them hear Christ? How can I articulate good news to them as a kingdom agent of Christ. Would you turn us out, O Lord, even in a world in upheaval, would you turn us out into the world until you come? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.